Anne-Louise Gittleman here, the First Lady of Nutrition for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. And it's my pleasure today to welcome a very intriguing guest, Dr. Damon Miller, who is not only a fan of my Fat Flush plan, but is an extraordinary physician in, in his own right. He's a board-certified medical doctor, and he's also a board-certified fellowship-trained radiologist with special certification in interventional radiology. But that's not all. He covers all the gamuts between Eastern and Western medicine and performs classical five-element acupuncture as taught to him by very clinical professors who are exceedingly well-known in the field. So I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Miller, to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Well, thank you, Anne Louise. It is just, it's a real joy to be here with you. Um, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, and uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure and a, just an honor to be here talking with you. Well, that's so sweet. Tell me, what, tell me how you discovered the Fat Flush Plan. And for some of my listeners that are not aware of the book, it was a New York Times bestseller that uh, was born in 2001. It's been very popular ever since then. I've been so pleased and so honored to say, and it's been on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been on every bestseller list in the country, and it was even on the cover of Women's World two weeks ago. So it's an evergreen program that's very attractive for people that need to lose weight, need to shore up their liver, and people with autoimmune disease. How are you using it, Dr. Miller? Well, I began using it. I've been doing for almost 20 years now uh, a program just for the people I see in my office and clinic. Uh, it doesn't have a very imaginative name. It was just called a healthy eating workshop. But when I had the thought that many years ago to start this, um, I was looking at resources that already existed, seeing is, is there a program out there that I can just sort of adopt and, um, you know, not have to reinvent the wheel myself. And the fat flush plan quickly rose to the top as something I was looking for. And partly because it, well, a lot of reasons, the things you've mentioned, but it was, it's based on just using real food. Um, it was clear uh, that you had a real mastery of nutrition. You know, I could tell that by how you'd put it together. And <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and there it, it does uh, cater. I mean, it tends, takes care of your liver health. It takes care of um, digestive health. You know, those are all kind of, even though you don't talk specifically in the book about those things as much as you've obviously thought of them when you put the book together, um, but it, it covers all those bases. But most importantly, the plan based on real food excludes a lot of foods that I've found long ago and working with people are foods that tend to be inflammatory and foods that people just don't, human beings don't do well with. And so here was a plan I could have somebody do it for six weeks and it would just sort of naturally, you know, instead of, instead of telling people, oh, don't eat this, don't eat that, you know, it was more here, just follow this plan, get on phase one, you know, we'll kind of follow you. We might stay a little longer than the two weeks and Louise Gittleman recommends, but get on phase one and we'll just, follow you and you'll see how you do. And at first people are going, oh, how can I not eat bread? How can I not, you know, not eat rice? How can I do all yes. these things? But they quickly figured out that, oh, this is, this is very doable. And, and they would do it. That's the most important thing. It was doable and people did it. And because they did it, they experienced what it's like to go even six weeks, not eating a lot of sugar, not eating um, a lot of carbs, not eating breads and things like that, following basic rules of food combining, 
and you know just a lot of things that are just a part of that program and at the end of six weeks they go wow i haven't felt this good since i can remember and all they did was change what they put in their mouth mm. and you know and, and you allowed them a cup of coffee in the morning you <laughs> uh you know the the portions were sort of variable if you feel hungry just eat more um and so a lot of these people weren't really going into this with the notion that they were going to be losing weight and I would tell them, you know, that you were very clever. You'd named it the fat flush plan because books that are about fat loss sell a lot of books. Mm. And, but this is much more than that. This is just a program for good nutrition. You'll feel better. And it gets us started in what I want you to be doing with how you eat. And, um, and that's just worked and continued to work for me. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. You know, one of the focal points of the, of the program, of course, as you mentioned, is liver health. It's lymphatic health, liver health, and GI health. But what I've noticed that you are now very uh, engaged with is the health of the optic nerve. So I know that you have studied with some of the real nutritional stars out there. How did you become interested in eye health? And the reason I mentioned the eyes is I believe in terms of Chinese medicine, and tell me if I'm not, if I'm mistaken here, I think the liver has a great deal to do with eye health, if I'm not mistaken. It, it does, although the, the way that liver, when a Chinese medicine doctor says liver, they're talking about a whole lot more than that organ that sits in the upper right-hand side of your abdomen. Um, in classical five element acupuncture, the liver is referred to as the uh, decision maker. Mm. And so there are officials in, in one of the reasons why reading Chinese medical literature, it seems so esoteric is because the, uh, the Chinese believed that what was true for the whole is true for the parts. And so they had a very clear notion of how the universe was ordered, how, and that was the order they superimposed on the court. And then if that was true for the rest of the world, it had to be true for everything in the world by their thinking. And so they talked about the systems of the body and the way the body worked. They talked about it in that same language. So in classical five element acupuncture, you have the, not the 12 meridians, but the 12 officials. And so some of them make some intuitive sense. So the Supreme controller, which is equivalent of the emperor or the empress, the, you know, he or she who makes all the hard decisions that nobody else wants to make, but that are good for everyone, that's related to the heart. Mm. And uh, the second meridian the, is the prime minister, but basically the person who stands between the outside world and the emperor or the empress. And that is affiliated with the small intestine, you know, so separating the pure from the impure. And so it's, it's very poetic, and, but it also makes a lot of sense when you start working with it. But the liver, the liver's not so intuitive. It's uh, more about decision-making. And so in the body, that means how is the body going to allocate its energy? How is the body going to allocate its resources? How's the body going to decide what to do if there's more to be done than it has energy for? It's going to decide this has to be done, and this has to be done, and this can wait. And um, so when I tell a surgeon that I'm going to be concentrating on the health of the liver, meridian after surgery, the liver, you know, the surgeon goes, well, I'm not going anywhere near their liver. I go, no, no, but, but their body has been injured by the surgery. And a lot of decision-making needs to happen as to how to mobilize things to repair that injury and get the person back on track. And so the liver is taxed after a, a trauma or after a surgery like that. So, but yes, the liver is also connected to the eyes. 
in oriental medicine. But the, I got involved with the eyes. I, I'd mentioned this to you briefly, but um, it wasn't something I went looking for. I am not an ophthalmologist. I am very interested in integrative medicine, meaning taking everything I learned in medical school and then going ahead and learning more and figuring out how to learn, all, take all these other things I've learned and integrate them into caring for people. Terrific. And so the, but I, I was at a conference in 1995 that was talking about uh, electrical behaviors around tumors, but there were some minor presentations at that conference uh, conference that were about people reversing macular degeneration and other retin and retinitis pigmentosa and other degenerative genetically influenced eye diseases, which I'd been taught in medical school were just completely, there was nothing you could do for them, nothing. These are diseases that have no natural remission. In other words, it's not like you get bad and then you get better for a while and then get bad again. No, you get bad and you stay bad. Mm. And if anything happens, you just get worse. Mm. And, and here were people who were actually reversing these diseases. And so that caught my attention. And, um, you know, I left, I left the uh, hospital-based practice I was in, and I, just because I was very, you know, I, start, I bought my first book on herbs when I was 12 years old with money uh -huh. I was mowing grass. So, mowing grass. so I, uh, I didn't really understand that nobody else in my class was buying books on herbs. But <laughs> it just seemed like a natural thing for me. And my grandmother was sort of an herbalist. And, um, but... I uh, had this long history of knowing that there were things you could do to help people that were about more than just pharmaceutical drugs and surgery and, you know, things like that. And so, you know, I was working, as you said, in radiology. So if you're in a hospital and in the department of radiology, you basically see every case that comes through the hospital. There's hardly anything that comes in that doesn't get a, some kind of an imaging study, an ultrasound or x-ray or CT, MRI, things like that. And, um, and so I'd see all these very interesting cases that would have these huge workups and you'd end up with a chart that was three feet thick and arrows and pictures and numbers and, and, but no, nobody had any clue what to do for these people. You knew everything that was wrong with them, but you didn't have anything to offer them. Mm. And that got kind of tiresome for me. And I sort of had a, uh, an epiphany and I took the step of just leaving the hospital based practice and never turning back. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to be doing. But um, I, had, I had some exposure to oriental medicine and acupuncture. I bought my first book on acupuncture in 1972. Um, that was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, and even that was, it was just sort of these, one of these fluky things. You know, the, I was in college at the time and my, the kind of dorm parent, if you want to call it that, you know, I was living in, the, in a dormitory at Yale University. And the, the guy who was sort of the person, you know, the in loco parentis, you know, watching over all the freshman college students, making sure they didn't get in too much trouble. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was a medical student and he got tapped. Um, people don't realize this, but when Nixon and Kissinger restored relationships with Mao Zedong in 1972, um, the only people in the country who really had any kind of a working relationship with China because there'd been this embargo against communist China for so long were people at Yale. Yale had main, had, has a long history in China. It had maintained um, its relationship with the Chinese even during the embargo by going in and out of China through Southeast Asia. And mm -hmm. everybody kind of looked the other way. The Chinese liked it because it brought in Western ideas and information and the United States liked it because it 
brought back information about what was going on inside communist China. So anyhow, he was a medical student. He got tapped to go with the entourage that went with Nixon and Kissinger. And he came back just blown away, fascinated by what he saw in the Chinese hospitals, mm. including uh, the use of acupuncture for anesthesia in surgery, mm. um, Amazing. which is which is not the highest and best use of acupuncture, but, um, you know, classical acupuncture would say, if you're doing something to somebody and it hurts them, stop doing it. Um, but there are tricks to give somebody enough anesthesia to do a, a surgery or to, you can do it on a rabbit. You can, uh, you know, do points on a rabbit and then go ahead and just stick needles through its ear and it doesn't even move. It doesn't even feel it. Mm. So it's not, it's not just uh, power of suggestion. It's something real. But anyhow, he came back. So I bought this book on acupuncture and that, that was the beginning of it all. And when I left the hospital-based practice, I decided, well, this is the, the best thing I already have that could help me deal with people without just giving them drugs. Um, because I'd had a long, I mean, I was at the top of my class in pharmacology in medical school. And I spent my whole first year in internal medicine. That's where I started making people better by taking them off their drugs. Oh my goodness. And, um, yeah, it was almost kind of a joke in the clinic. But um, so I, you know, knew that there were ways to take care of people and I became quite skilled and went down this road learning a lot about acupuncture. And I had, you know, my Western scientific mind was quite worried, well, what if this doesn't work? You know, what if, if I just like shot myself in the foot? You know, what if I just, I left everything behind and now I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket with oriental medicine to get started, but it turned out to work really well. And the... Um, you know, this, this conference where I started down this road of treating eye disease. Um, and I just want to mention Grace Halloran. She's a PhD. She was, she was really the pioneer in this. It was her presentation that really got me hooked at this conference in 1995. But she, her program wasn't just about using microcurrent stimulation, which is part of what we do. Um, but we also use oriental medicine in the form of acupressure. You know, Grace and I, I ended up working with her. Grace and I were really big on developing a program that people could do for themselves in their own home mm -hmm. um, to make it affordable and to make it available to a lot of people. And the oriental medicine part was with needleless acupuncture or acupressure. So that's one of the things, you know, we teach people how to do that as part of the program. And, and the microcurrent stimulation, that's a, an important part of it too. There's also exercises that increase blood flow to the head and the eye. There's supplements, there's color therapy. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to understand that the eye might have a therapeutic response when you shine very specific colors into it. And, um, and then diet has become a part of it too. So the healthy eating workshop that I mentioned, that's, a, that's something that everyone in the eye program is required to do. And that's included as part of their program. Mm -hmm. And so, so, yeah. so, so we don't see, you know, I've been out in the field for about 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. and we don't see a lot of books being written about natural eye care or natural eye health. If somebody were to become really concerned about a possible macular degeneration, genetic predisposition, what would you tell that individual? Well, I tell them to, so we wrote a book, uh, the title of the book is Stem Cells Heal Your Eyes. And that title was chosen sort of just before, yeah, just before the actual injection of real stem cells into the eyes became a thing. Um, but when we chose that title, it's because you, you know, we all have a system of 
adult stem cells we're born with. It's a system that lets us regenerate anything from, you know, healing your heart if you have a heart attack, healing a bone if you break it, healing a cut in your skin, you know, if you're shaving and, and the skin grows back and looks just like it did before you cut it. You know, there are these uh, endogenous stem cells or stem cells that are our own stem cells that are available to assist in any kind of regeneration, including regeneration of the brain and the eye and the spinal cord. You know, I was taught in medical school that uh, the brain doesn't regenerate itself. And it turns out that's just not true. You probably don't have a brain cell in your head that's older than 10 years old. Mm. The brain is constantly regenerating itself. And, and the stem cells are what do that the adult stem cells, the ones we have. So I tell them to read that book because it describes sort of the background to the plan, what, what you do if you're just worried you might get it because you have a family disposition to what you would do if you have an advanced case of it. So, you know, you're legally blind and you want to get your driver's license back. Mm -hmm. um, so that stem cells heal your eyes is that, and you can find a link to get that book for just the cost of postage at bettereyehealth.com, all one word, bettereyehealth.com. I think you were going to put a link or something. I think. Oh, that. we're going to put a link. We're going to put a yeah. lot. Thank you. Want people to know who you are. I mean, yeah. Dr. Miller is an extraordinary physician who's very well schooled in both Eastern and Western medicine. So he's he's really combines the best of both worlds, having a foot in in both these venues, so to speak. But I'm interested in knowing if you see that there are, if, if you feel that there are more degenerative eye diseases as we've progressed in 2020, 2021, do you see a pattern of, of degenerative health with regard to the eyes? Unfortunately, yes. And, and the, but the thing, you know, the thing to kind of put this into a context, I think it's useful to talk about just briefly, is that of all these degenerative eye diseases, so they have names like macular degeneration, that's one people have probably heard of. There's retinitis pigmentosa, Stargardt disease, which is a, both retinitis pigmentosa and Stargardt disease are, tend to show up earlier in life, age-related or macular degeneration. The most common is age-related macular degeneration, ARMD. That tends to show up, you know, after you've retired, you know, you're, in, you're 60, 70, 80 years old before that shows up. But just to talk about that one, the age-related. Yes. Now we understand that all of the people who have this disease have an abnormal gene that has predisposed them to it. But we also understand, because everybody's getting a genetic test these days, that the prevalence of that gene in the population is huge. Far more people have that gene than have macular degeneration. Huh. But just about everybody who has macular degeneration has the one of several abnormal genes. But then the question you want to ask yourself is, so if you've had this abnormal gene from birth, why doesn't it show up until you're 70 years old? Mm. How do you go? How do you go an entire life perfectly healthy, excellent vision, and now you're 70 and you start having trouble in your eyes, and it's because your health has deteriorated. When you're strong and healthy, you've got all the pieces to keep your eyes healthy, and anything you you the epigenetics you keep those genes suppressed, so mm -hmm. they never even get expressed. But even if they do start to get expressed, you've got the ability to repair the degeneration faster than it can occur. So you never know there's a problem. Yes. But now because of poor food, poor diet, increased toxicity, increased inflammation, just all the things that erode our health, we start seeing the appearance of these degenerative diseases like macular degeneration and many others where, you know, a hundred years ago, they might've gone to their grave and never knew they had any problem with their eyes. 
Do you think there are particular nutrients that are deficient in the diet that are contributing to all of this? Well, yes. Um, one is uh, lutein, uh, the, the kind of pigment that are one of the, if you look in the eye of someone with macular degeneration, their eyes, their retina looks very pale. Mm. They're depigmented. And those pigments come from lutein, not vitamin A, not beta carotene, but lutein. And lutein is found in marigolds and it's found in a lot of vegetables and things like that. It's a, it's a, it is a carotenoid. It's a form in the group of chemicals with vitamin A. Yeah. Um, vitamin A makes retinoic acid, which is important for seeing, but it doesn't make those pigments. So vitamin A is important for the eyes. But the, when you lose those pigments, your eye becomes much more vulnerable to damage from light. Everything from sunlight to the blue LED lights, LED screens, all those, um, all those damaging lights get absorbed by the orange pigments in the eye. And if those pigments are deficient, then your eye is more vulnerable to that. So I think that's one problem. And uh, the other thing that's missing in our diet increasingly as the years have gone by is the essential fatty acid, the omega-3 fatty acid, DHA, the long chain fatty acid. Yes. So, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, they're called essential. I mean, that word, you know, essential in nutrition means you, you got to eat it. You can't make it. And omega-3 fatty acids have just sort of fallen off the back of the bus in terms of what's available in our food because um, of modern farming practices and the ways that processed foods are made. You know, omega-3 fatty acids tend to spoil. They tend to be liquid at room temperature. Um, there are just all kinds of reasons why food manufacturers don't include those in processed foods. And they used to be present in meat and eggs and milk and uh, chickens and things like that when those animals were wandering around eating bugs and flowers and grass and weeds and things like that. But now they're all fed corn. And so um, there's no omega-3 fatty acid in corn. It's all omega-6. So the omega-3 fatty acids are quite deficient. And that I think is also um, bad for the brain. You know, our brain, our brain is mostly fat. I mean, 50% of the weight of the brain is fats. And that's the lipids that make up the membrane. And 50% of those fats are long chain omega-3 fatty acids. And so, um, you know, if you're trying to rebuild brain cells and you don't have the right building blocks around, the body will find something to put in there. But if you substitute an omega-6 as you're trying to rebuild a brain cell, it just, it's a defective cell. It just doesn't work. Especially so, omega-6. So are yeah. there special supplements that you recommend that are higher in DHA? Is there a particular brand name you can suggest? Well, yeah, I use, um, there is a, you kind of want a minimum of 500 milligrams of DHA a day. And Carlson, J.R. Carlson out of Chicago, uh, they make a uh, DHA supplement called Super DHA, which is very inexpensive. And it's basically taken from smaller fish in the North Sea which is still a pretty clean part of the world. So they test all their fish oils, and which is one of their flagship products. I mean, that's where they began was, I think, making cod liver oil or something. But, yes. um, but the, uh, all, they certify that all their oils are clean and free of all toxins, free of all heavy metals. And, um, and because they take this from smaller fish, just one super DHA pill a day is all you need. So, um, so it ends up being pretty easy to to get the dose you need with just one pill. So that's good for the brain and good for the eye. Yeah. And then the lutein, there are a number of, the, there's one company out of Europe 
uh, called uh, Flora Glow. They make a raw material called Flora Glow Lutein. They don't make a commercial product, but basically every commercial product that has lutein that's worth using gets their raw materials from Flora Glow out of Belgium. And how much, what is the milligram dose of that that you would recommend? Is it something like 20 milligrams? No, 40. So there's been, there's a oh. huge, huge body of work on lutein um, that goes back to the 1950s. And um, you need all of that work. You needed a dose of a minimum 40 milligrams of the Floraglow lutein to get any kind of benefit at all. If you're not using Floraglow, then you need 80 milligrams of other other sources of lutein. Oh, fascinating. So the Floraglow is a little more expensive, but you only need half as much, so it ends up being cheaper. 40 milligrams. Now there's another uh, carotenoid, the zeaxanthin. Is that something you also promote? Well, by using the, when you extract carotenoids from marigolds, you get all, you get, you get all of them. And that the includes, whole enchilada. You get the whole enchilada and that includes a very healthy dose of zeaxanthin. So you don't need a uh, separate, um, you don't need a separate product to get the zeaxanthin by using the Floraglow lutein, you're getting both. Wonderful. And then there's also, there's a lot of push people are looking at um, uh, pigments that come from shrimp and krill uh, called the astaxanthin. Yeah. Um, that one I haven't liked. It tends to be a little expensive, number one. Number two, a lot of the people I work with turn out to have allergies to shellfish, and so they get terrible rashes with the astaxanthin. Ah, uh, that's true. But also, given the fact that it costs more, um, there is no study I can find anywhere that's compared astaxanthin to lutein and found that it works better. So astaxanthin is one of those things where the people promoting it are the people making it. Nobody else. <laughs> that's the way it usually goes these days, Dr. Yeah. Miller. So, so these are, these are, what do you find highly deficient in individuals with cataracts? I'm seeing a whole kind of silent epidemic of cataracts and then of course the laser surgery. And are you a believer in that? A believer in the laser surgery for the cataracts? Yes. Um, well, the, I mean, the truth is the laser surgery usually comes after the lens replacement. Um, laser surgery per se you know, if you, if you want to model for cataract surgery, and it's just, it's again, it's just um, pollution, toxins, poor circulation, uh, the blue light I'm worried might be a problem. Contributing, yes, major contributor. Contributor. And, um, but the, uh, you know, I've got a stand, when I give a talk, I have a standing offer. If somebody can bring me a, a proven therapy for cataracts that doesn't involve surgery, um, I've got two crisp hundred dollar bills for them. <laughs> and, you know, I give talks to doctors and I mean, nobody's come forward. They go, oh, I've got, you know, I've got just the thing for cataracts. They go, yeah, give me one case, one case where you've documented the cataract, just did your therapy and it got better. The cataracts went away. Nobody, you know, I'm those two hundred dollar bills, I'm going to have to replace them. They're getting all wrinkled in my pocket here. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, you know, if you want to model for cataract surgery, people may not remember this, but, you know, convertibles used to have a kind of a plastic, back window or if I you find a, yeah, if you if you find a plastic water bottle that's been sitting on the beach you know the exposure to the sunlight it becomes opaque it it kind of the plastic gets damaged in a way that it goes from being clear to being opaque and the same thing happens to the plastic covers over the front of headlights on cars and things like that so um, you know that's what's happening to the lens in your eye 
those there's cross-linking going on that takes it from being something clear to something cloudy and opaque. And, you know, I challenge you to figure out a cream you're going to put on the headlight of your car that's going to make it clear again. Uh, I challenge you to take a laser and shine it on the headlight of your car. I don't care what kind of a laser it is or how you use it and make that cover over the headlights clear again. Um, it's just, it's damaged. And so the, there, there is some work we've done with eye drops, mm -hmm. use vitamin C and glutathione. Um, and I've seen carnosine eye drops. Yeah, the carnosine hasn't worked as well, but the glutathione and vitamin C, that you've got to be, you know, really diligent about it and use it for maybe a year or two. But I've seen some reversal with that, not dramatic, not wow, it just went away. And what's really odd, if you're if you got a dog with cataracts, I got just the thing for it. I learned this from a vet years and years ago. There are drops you can put in dogs' eyes that make the cataracts go away. Oh, um, I'm not a vet, so I can't prescribe it, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, vets get upset when people practice veterinary medicine without a license. So, <laughs> okay. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. And we've tried modifications of that everywhere we can think of for people. And it just, I don't know why dogs are different, but they are. Um, so yeah, but cataracts, cataracts are a problem. Eventually it gets to a point, but the, fortunately the surgery, you know, the uh, replacing the lens is, um, has been refined to the point where it's a pretty, successful surgery, very few complications. Um, you just want to find somebody who's done 10,000 of them, you know, who's got, got their act down. Yes. Um, and you can try, you know, you can always try the drops and things like that. You know, you don't, you don't burn any bridges by trying an alternative therapy for cataracts because if it doesn't work, the surgery to take out a lens that's really opaque versus one that's just becoming to be opaque and you're beginning to lose some vision, it's the same surgery. So, you know, it's, you, you haven't, you haven't lost anything by, take some time to try simpler, safer things. What about floaters that, that I hear so much about these days? Is there any kind of tried and true remedy for that? Well, floaters are, floaters, you know, people perceive floaters and they're two very distinct things that can call. And before we, I just want to say, I do want to spend a little time just talking about autoimmune disease. I'm just going to drop that in there and then I'm going to go back and finish my talk. And then we'll, we'll talk about autoimmune. Yes. Okay. Um, but the, uh, Floaters can be caused, number one, by, you know, you've had a little bleeding or something has put debris into the vitreous, that sack of fluid that fills the center of your eye. And if there's actual debris in there, you'll see it as literally as floaters. But the eye doctor, when they look in, they dilate your eye and they look into the vitreous, they see crap floating around as well. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that causes floaters, and this is what causes them in most people, is damage to the retina. So floaters are a common problem with degenerative retinal diseases. Um, and if you want to think of it as, uh, you know, you think of how a, a video camera works, you know, you've got, I mean, as a model, a mechanical model of the eye, you've got a lens and it focuses an image onto a plate and that plate is able to turn that light into electronic signals, which can then get shown on a TV screen or recorded onto some kind of a uh, recording medium or as a digital file. Um, but if that plate that's converting the light into an electronic signal is damaged, then there's going to be static and crap in the image. And so that's what happens if your retina is damaged. The image that gets sent to the brain has static in it and you perceive it as floaters. But when the eye doctor looks in your eye, they don't see anything floating around in the vitreous. 
It's because mm. of degeneration in the retina. Mm. And it's often one of the first signs of some sort of a degenerative retinal disease. And those, that's one of the first things that goes away as well when you start treating it. Interesting. So you're also an expert on autoimmune conditions. You've got, you have a lot of people that come to you for treatment of an overstimulation of their immune systems. What are you, what are you finding? Why has it become so prevalent? Is it the glyphosates? Is it the nanoaluminum in the, in the environment? Is it the radiation? Is it the CAT scans? Is it the electronic, non-ionizing electronic pollution that's coming from the cell phones? Why are we, why are we in the midst of a silent epidemic? Um, well, it's, it's all of those things. So if I, let me just start by saying the way I view autoimmune disease, what Please. I think of when I think of autoimmune disease. Please. And so you're right, it is an epidemic. And as if it weren't bad enough that it was an epidemic, it turns out that um, if you look at, you know, the, the people who've had problems with what's been labeled as COVID, you know, they've had some kind of an infection in these last eight months and they got over it, but they are having a world of problems after they're, you know, they're referred to as long haulers or post-viral syndrome or post-COVID syndrome, or, um, you know, they, something is going on where they, they never restore themselves to their previous state of health. And that is behaving for all the world like an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a lot of people yet, but the people that I've worked with that are having that problem that's what they came to me because they had this kind of continuous problem after a viral infection um if i work with them the way i would work with somebody with an autoimmune disease they get better so you you'd asked about all these different insults that we're living with now you know toxins and things like that and it's it's all of them so if you imagine all of the things that could insult our immune system because you're you're wording of it is exactly the way I think of it. It's an overstimulated immune system. Overstimulated to the point where it actually boils over and you start making immune products that attack your own tissues. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's, that's the way Western medicine looks at it as well. The only difference between what I do and a regular immunologist would work with an autoimmune disease is that the immunologist, the Western trained doctor, they're going to say, you have an autoimmune disease, you have an immune system that's overtaxed, overstimulated, boiling over, attacking your own tissues, let's kill it. Hmm. So, so they, and it works, they give you drugs starting with steroids and then amping it up to chemotherapy drugs that have been modified. Everybody knows chemotherapy ruins your immune system. So let's take advantage of that side effect. And we'll use those drugs now to treat your autoimmune disease. And Uh, And that works, it works for a while until you get some horrible infection or some cancer or something where you got to stop taking them or you're just so sick from the drugs that you can't take them anymore. But if you think, okay, what would be overstimulating a person's immune system? And I'm going to limit talking about things that you can actually intervene and do something about. Well, it turns out one of the big things for most people that's overstimulating their immune system is the foods they eat. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, and so in comes the fat flush plan again. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm working with someone, it's just, it's one of the, it may not be the final and only thing we do, but getting somebody to do the fat flush plan for a while, it, it sells them. It convinces them. Wow. I never knew that what I ate had such an effect on my health, had such an effect on my energy, had such an effect on how I feel. And I've got a 
questionnaire that I give them before we started and they do it six weeks later and it sort of just objectifies the fact that, yeah, you are really doing better. Um, but they don't even need that. They feel better. Um, you know, just to jump ahead a little bit, there are a lot of people I've been working with. I said, I've been doing this healthy eating workshop for 20 years. There are a lot of people that, you know, they come back, they haven't seen me for a while. They're having some new problems. I said, well, when was the last time you, you know, felt really good? And, and over and over again, people say, oh, you know, so when I did that eating plan with you, that healthy eating workshop, I haven't felt that good since I did that. And I, you know, and I go, well, I'm glad you're here paying me, but why don't you just do that again? <laughs> so that's where we're going to start. And, um, but, you know, it isn't, it isn't that foods are the cause of autoimmune disease, but you have 100% control over what you put in your mouth. Yeah. And so you can have a huge effect on your immune response simply by changing your diet. Now, in that regard, do you see gluten as one of those offenders, primary offenders? Um, it's actually more than just gluten, it's wheat. Um, modern wheat is uh, not the wheat of our grandparents. You know, it has, yes, modern wheat has gluten, but it's got 50 other gliadins that are even more allergenic, more likely to cause an immune response than gluten. And it very low protein, high carb. It's just, it's just an inflammatory food. And, you know, there are, um, not that this is, was designed as an experiment, but, you know, you go to a place like India, um, you know, where they've been eating rice for a long time. And areas of India that have adopted wheat, mainly because of Monsanto pushing it, um, but areas in India where wheat has become a staple in the food, you know, in breads and things like that, they have huge problems with autoimmune disease now. Mm, I didn't realize where, that. Where it, was, where it was unknown before. And there are other, other places like that. You know, the French bought, brought bread to French colonial West Africa, and you see problems there. Um, and again, it's modern wheat, not just all wheat. So I tend to talk to people about it, not just as gluten, but as wheat. Do you go grain-free? Well, fat flush plan is grain free. Yeah, it is. It is for phase one. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, I, I put them on phase one and I keep them there. <laughs> good, good plan. Yeah. I mean, I just tell them, yeah, well, eventually we'll get to a point where you eat more, but let's just go phase one. Phase one, it, it's a complete diet. It's got everything you need. You could eat that for the rest of your life and you'd be a very healthy and live a long time. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about phase two and three later. Um, but yeah, so I go grain free. And, and again, it isn't, it isn't that people need lab tests or anything like that. You do these things with people and you work with them, convince them they need to really do this diligently. And they know that it's working. They feel it. They yes. feel better. So that's what sells them. And then, and then they get tired of not having bread and they go out and they binge, you know, they've got, they, they do a, a wheat fest, you know, they have pancakes <laughs> for breakfast and, and a big, big sandwich on a hoagie roll for lunch. And they have, you know, some kind of a, pasta dinner and and then they feel like somebody's poisoned them you know i've had i've had people actually kind of give up and in a peak just eat a whole bunch of wheat and stuff like that and they end up in the emergency room they can't believe that wheat would make them that sick unbelievable yeah and so um yeah that used to be and that used to be a part of western medicine you know when you were doing you know trying to work with celiac disease you know kind of a true serious gluten intolerance. Doctors used to do this kind of wheat challenge test just to prove after taking people off wheat that it was real. And, but they quit doing it because it just made people really deathly ill. But yeah, so I do, so that's the food part. And the, the fat flush plan is, is the way I engage people with food. The other four things that I work with in the autoimmune disease, four things that have a big effect 
on making your immune system overstimulated are toxins. And I use Dr. Cowden's laser energetic detox program for that. That's just Lee Cowden, my good friend Lee Cowden. Your good friend Lee and my good friend Lee Cowden. Your good friend and mine. Yes, it's outstanding. I'm so pleased that you do that. So that's the second kind of. Yeah, dealing with toxins and. Pillar, so to speak. Yeah, and then. I, I talk about it separately, but it's another kind of toxin, emotional toxins. So mm. not just stress, but, you know, people um, are often just carrying around some story or some resentment or, you know, there are all kinds of things, but it's, it's an emotional toxicity that has a very negative effect on the immune system. So, so how, how do you ascertain what, what the underlying emotion is? is? Is there a system you use for that? Yeah, I do. One is, um, you know, there's, so one of the things about autoimmune disease is that this kind of blueprint I'm laying out of what you do, you know, you deal with the, the five things. I'll just name the other two. So there's the foods, the toxins, the emotional toxicity. There is um, environmental things and then chronic infections. Um, so that could be just a very unhealthy gut biome. That could be chronic viral things. That's, that's one thing I learned from oriental medicine you know, oriental medicine doesn't really have a theory of infectious disease. They talk about the invasion of external evils. It kind of <laughs> sounds like infectious disease, but, yeah. but they very much understand that you can have a residue from an infection that's incompletely cleared. Yes. And Western medicine is only beginning to um, understand that, you know, they've, they've got these tiny little endoscopes now. And so these kids who are sick as a dog and look like they're on the spectrum and they've had all kinds of vaccines and, They've got, they can put a colonoscope down to the ileocecal valve, you know, go to the end of the colon and then take this tiny little endoscope and go up into the small intestine and they biopsy the villi, which are the lymphatic tissue in the small intestine. And guess what they find living there? They find vaccine, measles vaccine virus. Mm. Um, so, you know, it isn't just, so there, there are ways that viruses hang out in the body. So, ascertaining what that is, which I do mostly with energetic testing, but having some plan to deal with chronic infections, bowel health, dental health, uh, those things are all can be a, a chronic negative stimulus to your immune system. And so, then, you, so you do use energy medicine. That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, I do. Um, and I use either muscle testing or electrodermal screening. Um, and electrodermal screening has proven to be faster and it's been quite useful. So that's, that's where I mostly go to in terms of the diagnostics. In terms of figuring are, are, out you, are you seeing a lot of Lyme disease in that regard? Well, Lyme disease, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, let me just, let me just finish one thing about the, you, the question you would ask, because it's important, the question you would ask about the emotional toxicity. Yes, we'll I'll go back to the emotions. Then we have to talk about Lyme. There's so yeah. many questions. Every time you say something, I think of 10, <laughs> 10 more questions I want to ask. Well, well good, good. Um, the, you know, it, there's no one really understand, you know, this, so this, this underlying problem is the same for all autoimmune diseases, even autoimmune syndromes that are post viral and things like that. But why in some people it shows up as an arthritis and other people it shows up as an inflammatory bowel disease and other people it shows up as a thyroiditis and other people it shows up as a lung inflammation and other people it shows up as eczema or psoriasis or skin problems and other people it shows up as some sort of a spinal cord or brain inflammation you know why would it look so different when the underlying problem is the same and so if you kind of ask that question 
and then start to dissect, well, what's the poetry going on here? There's often a poetry between people's stories and their life and the kind of physical problems they have. And so that's one good place to start. So if somebody's having a lot of inflammation in their gut, or even a gut tumor, you know, a colon tumor or something like that, and you just kind of casually ask them, well, what, what's been what's been the undigestible morsel in your life? What's, mm. what's, what's been shitty? Excuse my, you have to edit that out maybe. But no, no, excuse your French. You're excused. Excuse my French. Yes. You know, what's been, what's been really hard to digest in your life. And this whole story comes spewing out. No one's ever asked them that question before. No one's ever even thought that there might be some connection between the health problems they're having and, and everything else that's gone on in their life. They just have been told that it's all disconnected. But when you ask that question there, they, they're desperate to talk about it. They know it's important. They want to talk about it. And you don't have to be a therapist. You just let them talk about it. You know, it's this whole idea that it's only when those things are kind of buried under the rug that they're causing problems. Once it sees the light of day, it may not be pretty, but it doesn't have the power it used to have. And so, um, so that's one place I start. I do a lot of work with recall healing. That's another thing that Dr. Cowden has, you know, he and I both kind of discovered that at the same time, but um, so, and, and that's just a, a more refined way of looking at the pattern of things that have happened in your life and trying to put it together with why are you having these physical problems now. Um, that's very good, and, but it's a little time consuming, but, but very productive. So there, there are different, different ways of doing that. And sometimes you don't even have to find an answer. Just having people do some mindfulness work, some letting go, some clearing, prayer, you know, whatever works for them forgiveness, you know, just a way of, you know, it's, it's kind of a stress management thing, you know, you don't, you don't have to make it perfect, you just have to get it down a little. So that's, that's the thing with all these things, you don't have to have a perfect diet to reverse your autoimmune disease. It's, it's all of these things, the, the diet and the toxins and the emotional toxicity and the chronic inflammation and the chronic infections and the environmental things and the emotional stuff, all those things go into the pot and they stack up on each other and that's when the pot overflows. It's never just one, one thing. thing. It's, it's never just the toxins or just the foods or just the emotions. It's all of them. And so if I can improve your diet some, detoxify you some, deal some with the emotional toxins, get your gut healthier, um, deal with, look for and deal with any chronic problems with you know mold or infections or viruses, um, clean up your home and your environment so you're not you know, poisoning yourself every time you lay down in your bed at night, you know, that, um, you don't have to do anything perfect with any of those, but you, you sort of pull people back from the threshold. You know, when they're symptomatic, they've crossed a threshold. And all you have to do is pull them back behind the threshold and the symptoms go away. So tell Every, my listening audience where you practice because they're all going to want to come and see you now. Well, I, I practice in Northern California in Redwood. My office is in Redwood City, California, kind of the Northern end of the Silicon Valley, just down the road from the San Francisco International Airport. Um, but there's a lot of things I can do with people at a distance. Oh, that's, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, I mean, it's not about everybody having to fly to California. Um, there, because as you can kind of figure out, a lot of these things, you know, maybe there's a little lab testing we need to do. Maybe there's some electrodermal screening, but even that can be done um, over the internet now. You know, I can hook you, I, there are ways I can hook your computer. If you have a computer, I can give you a hand cradle, you hook you up to my computer and we can gather some information and come up with a plan for treatment and, it's not perfect, but it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough. You know, we can talk about a program for changing your diet and eating differently for a while. 
you know, so a lot of this stuff can be done over the phone. Um, Telemedicine. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I love that. So well, because I'm not doing anything to you. It's, it's like the eye disease. You know, I, I backing up just a little bit. I was talking about how, you know, asking the question, how come my eyes were healthy until I was 70 years old? You know, I don't have a magic program that's going to rebuild your retina, the most complex tissue, literally the most complex tissue in the entire body. I can't rebuild that, but I can make your eyes five years healthier and, and your body will do it. And most your people will, will take that. Your body will do whatever it was doing for the first 65 years of your life <laughs> and, and your vision will come back. So. One one other question I have to get in as we as we kind of go into our final five minute, minutes. Tell me about Lyme disease. Are you seeing an an overabundance of Lyme? Well, Lyme disease. Um, I'll I'll do I'll try and do this in five minutes. We'll do the five minute discussion on Lyme disease. <laughs> okay, you and you can I know. Um, so. Yeah, I do talk kind of fast sometimes, but no, you're very articulate. My people are eating this up. So go okay, on. so if you look at, um, you know, one one important piece of information, there was a study. I mean, a center for the study of Lyme disease that was started in 197. I'm not I'm sorry, 2005 at Columbia University in New York. Columbia just down the road from Lyme, Connecticut, where Lyme disease was first discovered. A lot of Lyme on the East Coast, and what they found. You know, one of the things they were doing, you know, by that time, by 2005, there was decent testing for Lyme disease, and they started testing everybody, every incoming undergraduate and graduate school class, everybody who walked into a clinic or the emergency room, every inpatient. They would take a little sample of all the blood drawn everywhere in that system, and they would test it for Lyme. And they found, what they found is, whoa, this is, you know, the people who had antibodies saying at some point they'd been exposed to Lyme disease was huge, you know, from if you extrapolate what they found to the rest of the country, you know, there's something like 60 million people in this country who've been exposed to Lyme disease. But there aren't people, 60 million people who are reporting that they had Lyme. And so Lyme disease isn't just getting bitten by a tick and getting exposed to the Borrelia bug. There's got to be a lot of other things that have compromised your health for you to develop chronic Lyme disease. And to use a different example, you know, what we understand now about AIDS, you know, AIDS is a pretty routinely fatal infection without very elaborate treatments. But in the years since 1985, when AIDS was first identified, what we found is, well, there are these people out there who have antibodies, they're HIV, human immunodeficiency virus positive. They have an, they have an antibody to HIV, but they've never been sick. They're not sick now. You can't find any virus in their body. Somehow they threw it off like every other virus they've ever seen. And there's a realization that, wow, if we'd been studying those people for the last 30 years, <laughs> we'd be further along in understanding what to do about AIDS. And the same is true of Lyme disease. People think of Lyme disease as um, this deadly, horrible, chronic disease. And, you know, and the Western approach to it is, you, you've, okay, we've identified this bug in you. Now we find the right drug, mix the bug in the drug and everything will be better. And three years later, after lots of intravenous antibiotics, you're still sick. You realize, well, that didn't work. Didn't work. And so, you know, people, if you really start looking, people who have chronic Lyme disease have a lot of other challenges to their health. They usually have multiple other chronic viral infections. They have herpes or Epstein-Barr or cytomegalovirus or, you know, measles uh, vaccine lingering in their small intestine or, you know, all these different things. They've got, they're toxic. They've got a terrible diet. They've got a horribly sick bowel. You know, they're just all of these things that are a setup that, their body is so challenged that it can't clear Lyme or anything else. 
And so you have to kind of approach them that it's not about Lyme disease. You have to improve the health of the person. You have to deal with all of the, the different components, all the different infections. And you can't do that usually very effectively with Western drugs. You have to heal their immune system, heal their gut, um, and approach the, you know, if you're going to use anything that's antimicrobial, antiviral, antifungal, antibacterial, you have to use herbs and um, homeopathics, things that aren't toxic in themselves, or else you just further poison the person. So, you know, Dr. Cowden, our friend, um, he developed a uh, Cowden protocol for the treatment of Lyme disease. It's a little complex, but he developed that protocol after working, you know, the there's, I won't name names, but there's some doctors out here in my neighborhood who, um, it's, it's, if it weren't so serious, it'd be kind of funny. They spend all day treating people with chronic antibiotics for Lyme, and then they go talk at conferences about how antibiotics don't work. Mm. And, and they know it because they've got thousands of patients mm. proving that it doesn't work. You know, and um, so he kind of challenged one of these doctors, goes, well, let me, let's take, you know, give me a couple hundred people that have failed on antibiotics and I'm going to put together an herbal protocol. We'll put them on it. I'm not going to do any kind of assessment. I'm not going to do any energetic testing or anything like that. We're just going to have this one uh, cookbook program. Everybody goes on it, same program, and it just rotates through a number of antimicrobial herbs and things. And 85% of those people who had failed on antibiotics got better on Cowden's protocol. And Amazing. you can get that. You, you can find, if you just look up Cowden protocol, you'll find that that's still out there and available. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, we've come to the very end of our lovely podcast, and you are just a wealth of information, Dr. Miller. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. I just, you know, in my, what remains of the rest of my life, I think I have another career in front of me, but it's just to be out there talking mm -hmm. about the, how important it is to really just take care of your health. I mean, that's how you stay healthy is you take care of your health. But we can find you. People can contact you directly through bettereyehealth.com. They can. There's also a second website, which has just other information, organicmd.com. We'll put both of those in the show. And our, our podcast, if you go to like Apple Podcasts or something, is organicmd. That's all one word, O-R-G-A-N-I-C-M-D. Um, but yeah, and um, I can also, sh I can give you, uh, I can send you an email that I'm happy to have you put up. So they don't have to go through the website. If they just want to email me, that'd be fine. Send me everything okay. <laughs> and we'll send you everybody. So I'm going to thank you once again, Dr. Damon Miller, for being my distinguished guest today on First Lady of Nutrition podcast. And I want to thank my sponsor, Unikey Health Systems, my go-to for the best anti-aging, women's and men's health products and self-health programs and testing. So for Anne Louise Gittleman, from Anne Louise Gittleman, for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, goodbye, good luck, and shalom, shalom, everyone out there. Mm -hmm.